Let's look together at these uh, wonderful eight verses. Uh, each week we've been looking at a new set of eight uh, that is represented by a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet where David is just really singing a love song to the Bible. He's singing a love song to God's Word, or at least the, the parts of it that he was in possession of, which was the first part of the Old Testament. And tonight I want you to notice something about the passage. Three times in verses 154, if you look at it, 156 and 159, he repeats the same request three times, evenly spaced out roughly. And the request is, give me life. Give me life. And so the whole section is organized around those three requests. Give me life, give me life, give me life. Um, if, have you ever seen the uh, musical Les Miserables? Uh, I know you probably have, or many of you, at least you've heard of it. Uh, in the early part of that musical, Fantine, one of the main characters, uh, sings a song called I Dreamed a Dream. If you've never heard it, it's your assignment to listen to it later. Look it up and listen to it. It's a beautiful song. Uh, a sad song, but beautiful. She uses this phrase, uh, I dreamed a dream of time gone by when hopes were high and life worth living. Thank you. Life worth living. That's what David means when he says, give me life. He's not just asking God, give me length of life. Okay, It's not just length that he's interested in. He's not just asking God, help me to not be sick anymore. It's not that. He's asking for what Fontaine was expressing. You can be alive and yet not feel like your life is worth living. Or you can be alive... And believe with all your heart that your life is fully worth living. That's the sense in which David is begging the Lord to give him this gift. This is what the Bible means by the phrase eternal life. Um, Y'all know that phrase, very common in Christianity. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. And Often you hear that word eternal or everlasting and you think, oh, I know what he's talking about. Quantity of life. I want to live forever and ever and ever. And that's part of it, but it's only part of it. It's only part of it because at the end of the day, everybody will live forever and ever and ever, right? It's not just some people, but all people. What that verse is promising you is a quality of life as well as a quantity. This is the reason why the Bible can say that a Christian actually has eternal life now. The moment someone believes in Jesus, they receive eternal life and begin to live eternal life now, which proves, again, that it's not just about forever, forever, by and by in heaven, but it's about a quality of life beginning now and increasing into eternity. Give me life, Lord. Give me life. And so if you look at your bulletin, we want to look at each of those three requests and the verses right around each of them. So we're going to see the gift of life from verses 153 to 154. Secondly, we'll see the rule of life, verses 155 to 158. And then finally, the satisfaction of life in verses 159 to 160. So first of all, let's look at 
this gift. Uh, David begins by asking God to look on him. Do you see that in verse 153? Look on my affliction. Look on my affliction. Uh, what is he asking when he says, look on my affliction? Yes, okay, I'm, I'm experiencing now, is it good or bad? Bad, yeah, affliction, which is another way to say it, is misery. Look on my misery and deliver me. But why does he say, look on it? Uh, does God not see it? Or does he think God doesn't see it? Compassionate look. In fact, that, that word is very loaded in the Bible. You remember... You may remember in Exodus when the people of Israel were in slavery and they were suffering and Pharaoh was giving them uh, you know, a higher and higher quota of bricks but less and less straw to build it with. Uh, it says God looked on Israel and saw their affliction. He heard their cry. So it wasn't that God was at one moment unaware and then suddenly, wow, okay, I remember those people down there, way down there, and I'm going to look at them. It was that God was beginning to express. He was ready to express his compassion towards the sufferer. That's what it means to look upon you. God looks upon us, meaning he is ready to express compassion to us in our suffering. David longs for that. In fact, he believes that if he's going to live... Give me life according to your promise. If he's going to have quality of life, he's got to have God look at him that way. To pay attention in a compassionate sort of way. Now, then he asks something else. What is it in verse 154? Interesting. You can call it out. If you're new to Sunday night, it's okay. This is not, like, not as like Sunday morning. You can say things out loud. It's okay. Yes. Plead my cause, he says. Plead my cause and redeem me. Both of those words are plead and redeem are legal words. In fact, the word cause is legal too. It could also be translated case, like a case in court. Plead my case. Be my lawyer. I'm hiring you, Lord, to be my lawyer, to plead my case, to redeem me in the court of law. This is interesting. What's emerging here, I think, is something very powerful. And it's explained by that, that little phrase in between the look on me and the plead for me. For I do not forget your law. Okay. Why is David afflicted? Why is he miserable? He's been a witness. He's afflicted and miserable because he has not forgotten the law of God. Right? That's what the word for means. Look on my affliction and deliver me because I do not forget your law. I mean, and then he says, God, go to law for me. I haven't forgotten your law. Go to law for me. Plead my case and redeem me. In other words, David is probably in affliction and miserable partly because of all that he knows about God's law. This is a very common experience that you've got to know about. Uh, this, is, this is something that we don't, 
We need to bring it out in church more. Uh, when you read the law of God and study it and learn what God expects of you or the duty that he requires of you, does that tend to make you feel better or worse about your condition? At first, a good deal worse. Here's the way Paul said it. Once I was alive. He sounds a lot like Fontaine there. Once I was alive. But then the law came. And sin came alive and I died. That's Romans chapter 7. Now what is he talking about? He's talking about his life experience that he was moving, going along his merry way, and then all of a sudden the law of God came with all of its legal demands against him and said, Paul, this is the way you should be living. And Paul concluded, I am not living that way. I have not been living that way. And the more I try to live that way, the more I fail. When the law came alive, Paul died and he became miserable. And he sought an out. He sought somebody to plead his case. Somebody to redeem him from those things that had made him miserable. Things of his own doing. In fact, this might interest you. Paul points out one of the Ten Commandments as the one that killed him in the end. In, in Romans 7. Not that he wasn't convicted by the other ones, but I, I'm sure he was. But there was one of the ten that Paul says, got me. Do you remember what it was? Covet. You shall not covet. That's number 10 if you're counting. Number 10. Now think about that. What is that commandment? You shall not covet. What does it mean? Don't wish for what you do not have. At least not in a selfish, unhealthy way, right? Be satisfied with what you do have. Be, be content. Know that the Lord has given you what you have and be content with it. Well, isn't that interesting? Most of the Ten Commandments, you can kind of look at a person and see them breaking them. And they're kind of, even if you are breaking them inside, you can pretend like you're not on the outside pretty easily. Like I can hate somebody in my heart but never actually put the knife in. But with covetousness, you cannot, well, you can pretend, but you really can't, right? Because covetousness is pure and simple a matter of the heart. When covetousness becomes outward, it becomes a violation of one of the other commandments. Like, I covet, so therefore I steal, or I covet, so therefore I commit adultery, or I covet, so therefore I kill. But covetousness by itself is only internal. And so Paul got wrecked when he realized the internal searching nature of God's law, that God was not only commanding me to do certain things and to not do other things, but to be a certain way. Have you ever tried to make yourself be a certain way that you're not? How's that? How fun is that? How successful were you at that? It's hard, isn't it? In fact, it's impossible. Paul realized it, so sin came alive and he died. He became afflicted, he became miserable, and what, you know, where does this all end? In Romans 7, Paul says, Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ who delivers me from my body of death. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus paid for my sins. He, he pled my case at the cross. This is David. This is what he's talking about here. Look on my affliction and deliver me because I haven't forgotten your law. Your law searches me. I try really hard to keep it, but I'm still afflicted. I'm still needing deliverance. And so, God, I'm begging you to give me life by pleading my cause and redeeming me. I got into this trouble in a legal manner. I deserved it. And now I know I need to get out of it in a legal manner. You must be my lawyer and take up my case. Only God can win my case. And in fact, he has. In the gospel, it tells us that Jesus uh, pled our case. When he stood before Pontius Pilate and he stood before the Jewish leaders, they accused him of blasphemy and treason. Now, was Jesus ever guilty of blasphemy? Was he ever guilty of treason? And yet he stood there making no defense. And he was sentenced to death for both of those crimes. What's the meaning? I am guilty of blasphemy and treason. Jesus stood in my case, in my place, and was condemned for me. He redeemed me by his blood. He bought me back for God. And through his resurrection, I have a whole new life. Do you see what David means when he says, give me life? It's not just a quantity of life. It's a quality. I want a life redeemed from the misery that comes with living in this world. And the misery specifically that comes from knowing your law and knowing how far short I fall. Now, why am I saying all this? I think sometimes, as Christians, we lose how marvelous this is. We forget how marvelous what I just told you is. And when we forget how marvelous it is, we end up forgetting it. This is how religion becomes dead. That is, it just becomes a round of duties that you just do or don't do. More likely, you don't do them, you neglect them. Or the joy of Christianity becomes completely shut off and sealed in your heart. You don't have any joy. Because you've forgotten how marvelous it is that God gave you life. That he pled your case. That he looked on you. Have you ever been around somebody who is new to Florida in the summertime when a thunderstorm rolled in? How do they tend to respond differently than us long timers when that roll of thunder comes and all of a sudden it gets black outside? Fear, like, what's happening? <laughs> Depending on where they're from, they may never, they may very rarely hear that kind of thunder. We hear it on the daily, usually, in the summer. We can just keep on going, working away. They're like, okay, do I need to, do we need to take shelter? See, as Christians, we sent the gospel becomes sort of like that thunder, right? It, it's still loud, it's still impressive, but we just kind of lose side of how awesome it is we need to remind ourselves of how awesome it is so that we would continue to stop and tremble and wonder at his grace God gave you life eternal life you were dead in sin now you're alive forever 
And you're alive with a life that comes from God. Listen, God looked on you. Before you were ever born, God decided to express his compassion in due time towards you and your helpless estate. He saw you, he knew you, he wrote you and all your days in his book. And he loved you. Wow. 2,000 years ago, the most perfect man that's ever lived stood trial. And he pled guilty because of your crimes against God. Do you hear the thunder? Have you lost a sense of how marvelous that is? God looked on you. God took up your cause. Therefore, you live the gift of life. Let's look secondly at what David sees, which is the rule of life. Listen to what one writer says. Uh, this is actually Charles Spurgeon. I liked, I've quoted him numerous times in this series. He says, um, those who are saved by the king of grace love the statutes of the king of glory. Let me say it again. Those who are saved by the king of grace love the statutes or the rules of the king of glory. In other words, if you're saved by grace, you will learn to love God's law now. You didn't love it before. Before, it was like Paul. When God told you what to do, it just brought sin up in your heart and it killed you. Made you feel guilty. Made you feel like you wanted to avoid God. Like he was being too hard. But now that he has reached out his love towards you in Christ, and you've embraced that love and began to taste it, now when his law comes, you see how much it lights up your path. How much you needed him to tell you what to do. And you greet it with joy. Those who are saved by the King of Grace love the statutes of the king of glory, for one simple reason. The king of grace is the king of glory. Uh, you cannot separate God from himself. I mean, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not to be divided. Uh, they are to be distinguished as persons, of course, but they are not divided in any sense. Uh, one is not greater than the other. One is not more friendly than the other. They are all exactly the same and always have been as to their essence. Same thing with Jesus. The Jesus who died on the cross and that was born in the manger is the same Jesus that now sits enthroned in inapproachable light. This is one reason why you can't have God as your Savior and not as your Lord. You can't do that. Because there is only one God who is both Savior and Lord. And so David makes this real interesting uh, remark in verses 155 to 158. He says, give me life now according to your rules. <laughs> uh, you see that in verse 156? Before he said, God, according to your promise, according to the gospel, give me life. Give me the gift. But now he says, according to your rules, the law, the duty that you require of me, give me life by it. Guide my life by your word which I have learned to love. He says, think about that in two ways. Think about that first by contrast. There are those who do not love God's rules. Everybody agree with that? Some people hate God's rules. All of us at different times hate different ones of the rules. Or we hate, you know, you might think that to be a strong word, but 
I don't mean that you would literally say, I hate that, but I mean you are just averse to it. You don't like it. You don't enjoy it. You have a distaste. That's what I mean by hate. And all of us have that within us. Paul says there are some whom that is really their only response to the law of God. Look at verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked. For they do not seek your statutes. Okay, we've got to be plain. To not seek the statutes of God as a light to your path is to be wicked. According to the Bible. That's as plain as I can say it. To not seek God's statutes as the rule of your life is to be wicked. Someone says, wow, that's a big word. Wicked, really wicked? I think I'm just misguided. Or inconsistent. No, the Bible says wicked. Wicked. Uh, it makes it clear. Uh, God's words have been given freely in order to be accepted. And they've been given freely in order to bless you. None of the laws of God are a, are, are, every law of God is a blessing. Um, right? Do you really believe that? To not keep God's laws leads to destruction. To keep them leads to life, blessing. It's a good thing. And so for someone to not seek them and not be concerned about what God wants them to do, that's what the Bible calls wickedness. Salvation is far from that person. Now, it's interesting. I meant to point this out a minute ago, so I'll point it out now. The word salvation there is the word Yeshua. Have you ever heard that word before? It's the name of Jesus in Hebrew. It's that word. Did you know Jesus was named salvation? The angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. His name means salvation. And there it is in the Bible. Some people say that Jesus is not found in the Old Testament. Au contraire. Psalm 119, 155 says Jesus. Jesus is far from the wicked. Now, okay, somebody says, well, hold on, Stan. What about mercy and grace? Doesn't God love the wicked so that they become his people? Yes. What this is saying is this. Anyone who persists in their wickedness makes a false claim to be saved. Because remember what Spurgeon said. He's right. He's dead on. Those who are saved by the king of grace love the statutes of the king of glory. Conclusion. If you don't love the statutes of the king of glory, your claim to be saved by the king of grace is being called into question right now. Salvation is far from those who are wicked, from those who do not have any concern about what God wants them to do in their life. Uh, that's paired by verse uh, 158, which is another stark and kind of harsh sounding verse where David says, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Now, you know, disgust is one way to translate it. Uh, maybe you have a different translation that says something like disdain or anybody else got another word? Grieved. I am grieved. Yeah, what, which one do you have? The King James says grieved. I am grieved at the faithless. It's getting at 
When I see somebody who's faithless, that is, when someone has no faith, meaning they hear God's word, but they don't actually believe it, they don't actually pay attention to it, they don't care about it. Uh, David's saying, my heart is like, really, again, it recoils against that. It's sad, it's broken when I see it, and, and it's something like disgust. Now, we shouldn't think of David here as being self-righteous. I don't think David's saying, I look at them with disgust because they are dirty, unlike me, who is clean. That's not his, his point of view. We know enough about David to know he knew his sins were dark and needed to be washed. What he means is, he hated the attitude that they display. He was disgusted by it. He probably saw the same attitude himself sometimes, and he was disgusted by it. To hear God's word and not believe it, not to trust, not to accept it, is unthinkable. And yet we do it, and other people do it, and some do it almost exclusively. And David says, that is not the way of grace. Someone who has been saved by God's grace and has been given life, now learns how to look to God's rules as the guide for how to live. We no longer think about the law as dreadful only. We learn to think about the law as a sweet light to light up our way, to show us what to do. In fact, the Bible tells us a lot of things that we need to know about what to do and how to live. It doesn't tell us every single thing. I mean, for example, you can't learn how to build a table in the Bible or to plant a crop, or to cure cancer. But in another way, you can learn how to build a table, plant a crop, and cure cancer. Because it says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus to the glory of God. I mean, so you, you, can, you can learn what's most important about any of those activities, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. You can learn that. Because the scriptures are given for that purpose, to teach men and women how to go to God, how to live in God, and how to live for God by His grace. Those who refuse to go there, those who do not frequent scripture, which is another way of translating what David's saying here, they don't frequent the word, are those who haven't yet fully understood grace. You haven't fully got the gospel. Or else your heart would be warmed to the Lord and warmed to the things that God wants. David has found that warmth. He loves Scripture. He goes to it. He, he, he searches it out every day to find out what he should do as king. And you can imagine in David's case, he had a lot of decisions to make. He had a lot of stuff to do. I mentioned this last week in regards to prayer. Do you think David was busy? And yet he prayed. And, and here we got it. David was a busy man. And yet he sought the Bible. And he, and he longed to know what God would say about this thing and that thing and the other that he was toiling over and trying to figure out how to handle. And what he found was a source of blessing in the Bible. Look at verse 156 and 157. Look at what the rules of God did for David. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I don't swerve from your testimonies. 
The word great and the word many at the beginning of verse 156 and 157 are the same word in Hebrew. Many are your mercies, Lord. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. What does David discover as he sincerely tries to walk in God's ways? My adversaries, my persecutors may be many. They may be strong. But I discover that your mercy is more. Your presence, greater. Your strength, far outclasses the strength of anyone or anything else. This is a discovery you can only find if you're seeking to live God's way. If you're not seeking in your life to live God's way, you will not find this lesson. Just like there are some places you'll never find unless you use a map. David is showing us where the map is. God has given us in Scripture the GPS to blessedness. He's put a pin on it. All you got to do is hit start route. And you'll make it to this place of blessedness as you seek to walk with God. Now, David didn't walk with God perfectly. He's not claiming absolute perfection. Nobody can. But he's saying, in sincerity, I love the word, and I, and I love what you tell me to do, and I want to know what you tell me to do. And in that, I find that whatever problem arises, you're a match for it. In fact, you're more than a match for it, God. Great are my adversaries, but great are your mercies. Wow. And isn't that the key to life? Right there in a nutshell? One writer calls it, David's invisible supplies, invisible dangers. David has invisible supplies in the midst of visible dangers. That's what you need. You need to see the invisible God. You need to see his invisible spiritual blessings that he's given to you in Christ. You need to see your spiritual union with Christ that can never be broken, the covenant that is between you and him. And when you see all those things and begin to walk in a way that's consistent with those things, you'll notice all the other things of life grow strangely dim. The good and the bad things will grow strangely dim. David says, I've been brought to life by your promise. Now, Bring me to life by your rules. Show me the way. Once again, we see it. It's not grace minus works. It's grace saves for works. That's the scriptural gospel. Grace saves for works. Not by works. Not minus works. For works. All right, last thing. We see the satisfaction of David's life. Verses 159 and 160, the last two verses. He says it again, give me life. This time, what does he say? Give me life according to what? Chesed. Yes, chesed. Our favorite Hebrew word to say, right? Chesed. Steadfast love. 
Give me life according to your promise. Give me life according to your rules. Give me life according to your love. Look at verse 159. Consider or look upon, same word as in the first verse, look upon how I love your precepts. Do you notice the change in David? Uh, At the beginning in verse 153, he said, look on my misery. And now he says, look on my love. He's gone from misery to overflowing love for God. Overflowing love. He loves the Lord, and he's conscious that he loves the Lord because the Lord first loved him. That's the meaning of steadfast love. God loved me unconditionally, regardless, eternally, and therefore my love for him has grown and grown to the point that I'm saying, God, look at my love. Look at how much I've grown underneath your smile. Look at how I've developed. Look at how my mind has changed. Look at how my life has changed. And help me to have life yet again. Help my life to continue under your care as you began it. Finish it. The sum of your word or the head of your word, the source of your word is truth itself, David says. And every single one of your righteous rules endures forever. Do you hear it in David's voice? His delight, his love is fixed on God himself. That's how he's found satisfaction. That's what eternal life is in its essence. Uh, Jesus defined eternal life this way. He said, give them eternal life, and this is eternal life. That they may know you, Father, and your Son, whom you have sent. To know God is to have eternal life. David knew God now to the point that he loved him. He knew God to the point that his word became proven by him. He had tested it and proved that its truth was absolutely unassailable. He had never been let down by scripture and by God's voice there. And so he is almost swimming in the the sea of the attributes of God here. God is indestructible. God's life will never end. And the life that I have with God, therefore, will never end. It will only get better. You can see why uh, Jesus would say to the crowds in John 6. Uh, This was after Jesus fed the 5,000. And the crowds came to Jesus and said, Oh, Jesus, we just thought we'd stop back by again for some of your teaching. And Jesus saw through it. He's like, oh, you just want the loaves. Remember that? It's one of my favorite parts of John. You're just looking for me because you wanted more bread. Interestingly, they don't deny it. They just kind of stand there. And Jesus says, here's my advice. Here's my teaching today. Do not work for the food that spoils but work for the food that endures to everlasting life. And he goes on this long teaching that offends almost everybody, and they all leave him except for maybe the 12 because he says, you've got to eat my body and you've got to drink my blood, and if the Father doesn't draw you, you can't come to me. And everybody's like, this is so offensive, Jesus, and they walk away. 
And Jesus asked Peter, Peter, are y'all also going to leave? Everybody's left me today. No one liked my sermon. They're gone. Are you going to leave? Remember what Peter said? He got it. He understood it. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He understood what David got. You can be alive physically, biologically, and be dead spiritually because you do not know God. You can have a biological life that is in many ways miserable. Now, I don't wish this on anybody, but sometimes we draw that lot, don't we? Where we go through a season or a patch where it's just, we lose, 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 lose. The health goes bad, the kids go bad, the job goes bad, you know. That can actually happen, and yet, though your biological life is struggling, you can have spiritual life that is untouched because you know God. Your life in Christ could just as soon be affected as Jesus Christ himself could be affected. Is there anything in the world that can bring Jesus Christ down from his throne? Can anything lower him by a couple of centimeters? Unthinkable. Well, nothing, therefore, can change your eternal life with him if you know him. David says, according to your steadfast love, a love that never ends, a love that is just like God is, perfectly immutable, unchangeable. Because of that love, I love God. And I love his word. And I want more of him and more of him. Think about that. Samuel Rutherford wrote this. He said, the sinner, that, and he's talking here, I mean, we're all sinners, but he's talking here about the sinner who does not know Jesus. The sinner is always at something that he believes will lead to heaven and happiness. Always. There's always something. This is going to be the thing. It's going to get me heaven on earth. It's going to get me happiness. But every single time he discovers it's not so. He's disappointed. Why? Because there is nothing in the creature that can do so. There's nothing in created things that can give you heaven and happiness. But the person who finds themselves in God, who seeks themselves in God, will find not only themselves, but God and the creature too. Wow. Do you know Samuel Rutherford? You might not. He's got a glorious hairstyle. Lived in that in the 1600s. I want to end tonight by reading from one of his letters. And he is known as a wonderful writer of letters. Uh, this particular letter he wrote to a, a lady, uh, a friend of his. It was a woman that had been suffering a lot. And I want you to listen because this is a wonderful description of eternal life. 
He says, your life is hid with Christ in God. And therefore, you cannot be robbed of it. Our Lord handles us as fathers handle their young children. They lay up jewels in a place above the reach of the short arm of the bairns. Bairns is Scottish for little kids. Else the bairns would put up their hands and take them down and lose them quickly. Our Lord has done this with our spiritual life. Jesus Christ is the high coffer or the, the, the high up uh, bowl in which God has put our eternal life. We as the children are not able to reach it with our arm to bring it down so that we might lose it. It is in Christ's hands. Oh, long, long may Jesus be the Lord keeper of our life. Happy are they that can, with the Apostle Paul, lay their soul in the hand of Jesus. For he is able to keep that which is committed to him against that last day. Madam, so long as this life is not hurt, this, this eternal life is not hurt, all other troubles are but touches in the heel. You get that? All other, if your eternal life is not hurt, every other trouble you can imagine in this life is just a little prick in the heel. I trust you, it will soon be cured. You know, madam, some kings have servants in their court that don't receive their present wages, but live upon hope. Well, the king of kings also has servants in his court that for the present get little or nothing but a heavy cross of Christ. Troubles without and terrors within, but they live upon hope. And when it comes to the parting of the inheritance, they remain in the house as heirs. Madam, you have a joy. And you should have joy when you think that your Lord has dealt more graciously with your soul. You've gotten little in this life. This woman suffered a lot. It is true indeed. You have them the more to crave. Yea, you have all to crave. For except for some tastings of the first fruits and some kisses of his mouth whom your soul loves, you get no more. But I cannot even tell you what is to come for you. Yet I may speak as our Lord does. The foundation of that city is pure gold, clear as crystal. The gates are made with precious stones. The, the plants bear fruit in season and out season for the healing of the nations. There's a river of pure water of life there, and the throne and the temple is the Lamb himself. Madam, believe and hope for all of this till you see it and enjoy it. Jesus is saying in the gospel, come and see. And he is come down in the chariot of truth, which he rides through the world to conquer men's souls. And is now in the world saying, who will go with me? Will you go? My father will make you welcome and give you a room. For in my father's house are many mansions. Madam, go with him. This is eternal life. Amen.